if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. This is Pablo Neruda, a poem on being quiet. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. So, as my friend Shaila said to me yesterday, suffering has a way of getting in when you don't want it, where you think it might not come. Here we are holding the explosions in Boston together as a community between all of our hearts and the hearts uh, responding everywhere in the world to this and this kind of thing. So I'd like us to sense into the space of compassion that doesn't belong to just one of us, that belongs to all at certain times. And when, sometimes when there's something very painful, the nature of the heart is to open to it. Sometimes the nature of the heart is to protect itself or harden or feel angry. So all of these movements are possible in response to suffering. When I first heard about this event, it took me a little while to sort of sense into it. So if it takes you some time, let that be. And for those who have felt numbness or guilt or outrage or feelings that unwanted feelings, please remember that this is the practice to hold whatever our truth is in this moment in a space of attention and knowing, compassion for self and other. It wasn't really as real to me as I wanted it to be at first. I did look on the online a little bit and I saw some of the clips, you know, that go get played and there was someone saying, what happened? What happened? And his friend said, do you think it's safe here? And the other guy said, no, I don't think so. I think we should leave. Somehow that little moment of just sort of normal people a little bit stunned and trying to figure it out um, helped me feel more connected myself. Some of the runners rushed toward the explosions, not thinking of themselves, but thinking to care for those who were hurt. They could have been running away. Some of them, after running for 26 miles, kept running to hospitals to give their blood there, even though they were tired and exhausted. Some people stayed home and opened their homes and their hearts to shelter marathoners who didn't have somewhere to stay, needed some kind of a human connection along with a hot meal. So I like to think of us as being a little bit like that, we stayed here. There's not so much that we could do 
other than chant, bless, and be part of the human heart that holds these kinds of events, loving attention, loving response. Letting it happen, this too, this too can be in our practice. This too can come to our monastery here. I was in Burma in 1988, um, the kind of end of my time as a nun there, and they were actually shooting people outside the gate of the monastery where I was practicing, where I'd been for five months. And the people were very concerned for me. All the people around us were saying, well, you know, we'll take care of you. You can stay. You can stay here as long as you want. Don't feel like you have to leave just because there's all these problems. We hope you don't blame our country for being this way. And as the shootings were happening on the main road, we were not supposed to come out of our dorms. And you could hear some of the women in the women's meditation hall, Burmese women whose sons and husbands and daughters and relatives were probably in the protests and they would cry quite loudly when they'd hear the guns shooting. That was one heartfelt response The monastery's treasurer said to me that he was completely calm. He said, I understand the Dhamma. I am not disturbed by events. My teacher, Sayada Upandita, felt terrible grief at the death of some children who'd been mown down by machine guns. He couldn't really give talks for the period of the really biggest violence. He closed himself in his hut and a nurse came and went from his place. This is our meditation master. He was actually sad. Later on in the process of Burma, he stood up to the authorities and often was very outspoken, using his position as a monk to challenge many things that were happening. He said, compassion says what needs to be said, and wisdom doesn't fear the consequence. Myself, I had to leave. I knew there was, it was better for me not to stay because I, I thought I might be a burden. I didn't know what would happen. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, often cries. If you've seen much of him, you've probably seen him cry so easily. And yet, he says he's quite happy. You can kind of see that his mind can go through compassion and joy holding the events, what has happened in his country, within the ability to be happy and how that helps Tibet and Tibetans, his practice, his intense practice to be able to do that. I heard him once say that people come to him asking him to fix things or do magic. And they say, and he said, look what happened. I wasn't able to save my country. So you know that I don't have the power to transform things outwardly, but I do have the power of this practice. I really listen carefully when someone says that, and I hear the ring of truth in those words. We can do this. We can develop this kind of skill in our life. As the Buddha said, it's possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I wouldn't say to you, abandon what is unskillful. 
but because it is possible, I say to you, abandon it. Develop what is skillful. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible, I wouldn't say to you, develop it. But because it's possible, I say to you, develop it. These kinds of passages go on and on. I've cut it down significantly. (laughs) And I think judging from the people that I've met today and yesterday and even the first day here that there's a sense that there is a possibility in us to develop what is skillful. Sometimes it can be that we obsess over something tiny, apparently tiny, that just triggers us and we bring into retreat this tremendous reaction. And as the days go, we see that it's kind of just the mind doing its thing take a different position where we witness it with compassion and with kindness, you know, as ridiculous as it is. We've talked quite a bit about this in the talks. Holding our experience in this great space of mind and heart, which is why we develop the loving-kindness practice as well, that the space of awareness and the space of loving-kindness are kind of coterminous, infinite, infinitely allowing, or at least developing in that direction as much as we can. The teaching on the great or spacious mind outwardly and inwardly are very similar. Martin Luther King said, there's good in the worst of us and bad in the best of us. Kind of equanimity in that. Just as we've seen ourselves uh, sort of being angelic and demonic here and silly and stuck and itchy and spacious. That's what our outer life is also like. Read a uh, quotation from a British woman writer named Diana Athill, a book she wrote somewhere near the end. It's called From About Old Age. From up here, talking about her advanced stage, I can look back and say that although a life is less than a blink of an eye in terms of the universe, Within its own framework, it is amazingly capacious. It can contain serenity and tumult, heartbreak and happiness, coolness and warmth, craving and giving, a neurotic conviction that one is a flop and a consciousness of success amounting to smugness. Most lives are a matter of ups and downs rather than a conclusive march into any extreme, whether that's fortunate or unfortunate. And most lives seem to come to rest not far from where they started. So in that teaching of accompanying ourselves through ups and downs and the discovery of space, there's also the discovery of a capacity for compassion, a compassionate response. When there's not as strong a center, as strong a grip, on a well-defined self, which is basically built up of reactions for and against things that kind of become rattle into becoming a view of self. We can be more open, less confined in our loving also. Nisargadatta Maharaj says, I find that somehow by shifting my attention, I can become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. 
I somehow become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. So there's a way in this practice that the phenomena of awareness, the phenomena illumine and make possible our knowing, just as sometimes the pain in our heart shows us our wish to be able to love. And beings are kind of our practice points, the actions of beings. How do we respond to events in our life and to people? It's all really the same practice. Each being can receive our goodwill and wisdom just like all the moments is encompassed in our awareness of of experience. No experience outside the realm of practice, no being kicked out of our heart. So that loving instruction that the Buddha gave to his son Rahula, along with the teachings to develop his meditation-like space, also suggested that he develop loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity too. He said, just as when people throw feces, urine, spittle, pus, or blood on the earth or in the water, in a fire or in the air, really the mind like space or like the earth or like water, any of the elements, let's say the air or space is not troubled, worried or disturbed, so to develop a mind that is like earth, water, fire, air, and space. Develop love, Rahula, for by doing so, ill will will be got rid of. Develop compassion, for by doing so, the heart desire to harm will be got rid of. Develop joy, dislike will be got rid of. And equanimity for reaction will be gotten rid of. So in this mind like space, nothing sticks. It's the same as the mind of loving kindness ultimately as we develop that. Hatred doesn't stick to that mind that's generating kindness unconditionally. I remember there was a time when I was doing a practice of pretending that I was gonna become a Buddha and like trying to invite everyone into my pure land realm that I was gonna inhabit once I was fully enlightened. And I found there were some people I really preferred they wouldn't come. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to imagine them as like, I said, okay, well, by the time they get there, they're going to be fully purified Buddhas too. So I was telling my friend, like, you know, like I did that. I figured out how to get them in there. Like they too had their own little lotus and they too had their own little crown. And, you know, they had gotten rid of all their problems. And my friend just remarked, that's not too unconditional, is it? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> come as you are. <laughs> Life, come as it is. So I wanted to also talk a little bit about how the Buddha in his own time, you know, we imagine like a lot of his story as we hear it is before his enlightenment and his journey to leave behind his privileged life and discover a deeper response. But... There's also was the time when he was, after his enlightenment, uh, walking the dusty roads of India, rain or shine, and teaching and living out in the woods and spending the rainy season in forests and meditating at the roots of trees. And he had pe- a period of being, you know, really very popular, but he was also really living in a world of great political upheaval in his day. His father's people went to war with his mother's people. Um, he sat down in the path of an army three times 
were coming to invade another country. And two of the times he persuaded the army to stop and go back, and the third time it didn't work out. So there was great slaughter and that he couldn't prevent, which was actually part of the foundation of the nun's order, that there were widows and things left from this war that the Buddha wasn't able to stop um, with whatever wisdom and persuasion that he had. Later in his life, his two best friends or best disciples died. One of them was murdered, actually, while he was in a retreat in a cave. And there's a sutta where he talks about how he feels the hall is, meditation hall is empty without his best friends, like his close, wise companions who'd been with him for a really long time. Even later than that, one of his former students left the monkhood and in one of the parliaments of the Vajian kingdom spoke against the Buddha and said, like, this guy does not um, help anyone reach transcendental states. He only teaches how to get rid of craving, and that's all he teaches. And the the Buddha said that was a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) But because of, you know, the people's desire to achieve transcendent states, he actually lost some of his financial support as a result of that. Like the, you know, the scoffer was able to turn the minds away and disregard the importance of getting rid of cravings. So after that, his fortune sort of declined. You know, he had to go live again in a cave instead of in a fancy monastery. And then later on, he spent one of his reigns retreats alone um, and sent his disciples all to practice in their own homes with their own families or with individual supporters because there wasn't the outside support for him anymore. And yet, because of his development of mind, his loving kindness, equanimity, we assume, didn't waver, that there was not suffering in him, even as he went through all these conditions. I think that's really important for us to kind of understand that it's not like he ended up sitting on a lotus or kind of protected by a golden halo. One of his cousins tried to kill him. You know, really, people were arguing with him all the time. And he just kept trying to teach You know, there was the equanimity phrase of, may I give my love and presence, knowing it could be met with appreciation, indifference, or hostility. Well, he exemplified that, giving and giving and giving what he thought was the most essential and meaningful gift that he could give. The teaching, but also, I feel very sure of it, his love and his presence to everyone who came to him. Even when he was dying, at the very, I imagine that it was, just a few hours before his death when he had really terrible stomach pain, somebody came and said, I want to, you know, I hear this really famous teacher's dying who's like really special. And the Buddha made time and gave him a teaching and he was the last person to receive a teaching from the Buddha. So by this example, we can see that, you know, very, very strong impacts on our mind. It's possible and body. It's possible to feel still that sense of internal safety, wisdom, understanding, and love in ourselves, that the mind has this capacity to be trained extensively into this point, to not be suffering. Just as we don't uh, rely on outer events to keep us happy, the outer events can't ruin us. Like we are not going to be saved and we're not going to be ruined by outer things. It's really important to know. So if we look at life and we don't run away, life 
will teach us this or will at least show us that we can't rely on external conditions. But I think what really helps is also to have the teaching and the teachers that there is a way to open the heart and also not suffer at the same time. To open the heart and mind and make an end of suffering here and now. That it's a real thing. It's not by shutting down and it's not by getting enmeshed. It's balanced and open and experiencing things and experiencing things in their nature arising and passing away, not holding on to them and them not holding on to us. We're not captured in experience in that sense. I've met a being who I feel was kind of an example of this. There's an old Tibetan teacher, Young Tung Rinpoche. I just saw him a few weeks ago in um, California. He was giving some teachings. I was really impressed with him the first time I met him when um, I knew he'd been in a prison for a very long time. He didn't, doesn't look so healthy himself. I'm not really sure how old he is. But um, he said he never suffered in his 22 years of imprisonment and deprivation and torture and forced labor. He never suffered. And when he said it, I knew it was true. I just felt it was true. It was kind of like a little, almost like a little earthquake in my mind. Like, he's telling the truth, this person. And just now when I saw him, I, he, there's a tradition of being blessed. So you kind of approach the teacher and they give you a little blessing. And it was just that he was kind of looking at me with his face so tender, like the expression in his face so compassionate. And I have thought, I thought as I was preparing this talk, I thought, what could I say about the way his face looked? And it was like, you would like to see someone looking at you like that as you're dying. Something like that. Just the beauty of the compassion and tenderness and feeling like seeing each other and it was sort of coincidental I thought that because I was looking up like how long was he in prison for you you know just to tell you guys it was 22 years and I read that he helped many on their deathbeds in that prison people who had to die while they were there that he was present for them at that time with just the beauty of his openness love and compassion open to their experience helping them through holding in his presence also their presence for themselves maybe as their own capacity to take care of themselves was slipping away. Albert Einstein said all wars comes from the human mind. It's easier to extract the toxins from plutonium than to purify the human mind. <laughs> so I wonder if we would be, just the, with this point in the talk, would anyone be willing to say with me it can be done? Can we say, yes, it can be done? Yes, it can be done. It doesn't have to be, but yes, it can be done. Thank you. <laughs> Should we say it louder? I think in Zen they would want you to shout, yes, it can be done. Yes, it can be done. <laughs> Yahoo! <laughs> Great. Yaha, good. <laughs> so we've looked back into the nature of our own mind, right, here looked at this nature of awareness, which is really intrinsic to our existence, and we're not even calling it the mind, like part of the deep nature of our existence. Almost calling it mind is a little almost too much like making it something central. It's that which receives our experience, um, and yet isn't really there, as Guy so majestically pointed out last night. I think, in a way, we've led you through Philip's um, kind of 
step-by-step instruction. Like we say, we, what is it to point the attention? We recognize what that's like. Then working with an anchor, we see what it's like being aware of something and what it's like when the mind has gone away from something and then aware and unaware being present and losing it. We start to get some flexibility and understanding in that process of how also then as we're more and more able to be aware, we start to sense into how it feels when we are, when we're there, we're present and the awake part of our mind is really looking in the present moment. There's a sense of that and gathering a sort of force in that place. We're able to see what that's like, begin to be able to look back at the awareness and see. First of all, I think most often it's easy to see the seeing part of it or the awake or the light part that sees and then the space part part that is non-self that doesn't have a form. So we've kind of carried you through that. I sort of want to go through it a little bit again just to repeat it, to lay it down. So I did that once, I'll do it again. This um, aggregate of consciousness that's essential to beings, this knowing faculty, vijnana, it's the same at all the sense doors, it's said. In the Sutta Nipata, it says, just as a twig fire or a log fire is always a fire, so the consciousness at the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and mind is always the same, clear and transparent, just revealing the object. And this aggregate, vijnana, or consciousness, is not bearing any of the seeds of ill will or desire or delusion of the being, of the knowing being. So that part of our knowing mind is actually always clear, always not colored by the experience that it's revealing to us. And it is a little uh, subtle or weak, so that most of the time we overlook it and we get caught up. So even if we're in desire or ill will or shame or numbness, the knowing mind is never touched by that. And I think that's a very important way also of understanding when Philip was saying this afternoon that we don't blame the beings who do bad acts, or we can recognize that there is a place in them that's never been touched by impurity or by rage or by any of their bad sides. That doesn't mean that they haven't uh, caused harm. It doesn't mean recognizing that. But for me, it really helps to open up the sense of the equality of all beings by the equality of the knowing mind that's in us that isn't a person. It's just an aspect of mind. I would say that we claim it as a person. It's like, because consciousness feels like it's always there, it's one of the bases of ascribing a self or assigning a self to our experience. But I'll get to that later, I think. So consciousness is free from stains. Being free from stains, it's not a self. It's peaceful, all on its own. It just is like that space-like nature of mind. It has allowed every beautiful and horrible experience since beginning of our life. And yet, it's not really strong enough to keep us um, from acting out, I guess you'd have to say. So we also need to practice this attention and this skill of knowing how to place our mind in a particular place or a particular way, evoking kindness or being able to see what we're looking at or, you know, training and cultivating this mind that we're born with, this human mind that misconstrues reality so as to cause harm to ourselves and others, cause suffering. 
So what we do generally is we develop um, sati, panya, the extraordinary form of attention that is nonviolent, non-judgmental, and sustained. So we repeatedly cultivate this attention in the present moment again and again that is sort of like replaces um, some of the energy in our difficult mind states. So um, someone today was talking in our meeting about watching the mind being like a moth to the flame, just doom, 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 going back again and again to a certain object and feeling kind of, you know, I would say like now departing from what was said in this meeting, just what's happened in myself is sometimes when I'm like that, I feel very humiliated by not being able to control what the mind is doing and the mind leading the body also like moth to flame toward different behaviors or the speech, the mouth might say things, you know. And as, you know, Buddhist psychology would explain it, as we just notice and watch this repeated pattern, we're watching it again and again and we start to discern it's, it's just a pattern, it's just an activity. So the, the f- subjective feeling of being released is because mindfulness becomes one of the qualities that's kind of conditioning our experience of this. So as we watch it happen again and again, we sort of more and more mindfulness and the non-judgmental, non-blaming, non-craving aspect that's in our mindfulness starts to affect our overall experience and affects a gradual liberation uh, inwardly. And we feel a sense of freedom or you know, sometimes amusement or your mind becomes a little bit like a pet or something like, here, oh, there you go, there you go again. <laughs> or sometimes we're uh, mindful enough to see something starting to happen. Like, I remember when I was, you know, there's a period of when my husband and I were first living together, and there were certain things of his that it took some getting used to, and as it was on the other side, I'm sure all of you know that kind of thing. Like, we love each other, and sometimes there's just little stuff. So. I, first, I would find myself saying, like, fixing, like, would you, I don't know, would you please do this, you know, instead, and didn't get necessarily a best reaction with, from that peevishness. So I'd start saying it, and then sometimes I would find, like, two words would be out of my mouth. I'd hear the rest of them coming, and I'd quickly change the subject, like, do you think you could, like, go with me to the store? <laughs> Which worked out much better. <laughs> than what I would have originally said. <laughs> so we can do this, this internally also. So close observation, our you know, mental movements, which are really the precursors of action, tend to take their rightful place as objects of mind. Bhikkhu Analayo says, um, mindfulness has the marvelous ability to transform obstacles to meditation into meditation objects transforming obstacles into objects, kind of almost a pun. So as we've kind of rushed you through this process here, the awareness or mindfulness gets kind of thick enough or starts to be a little bit more like in control or predominant in experience. And at that time we uh, make our attempt to look at at the awareness itself and start to see those qualities of non-judging and non sort of non-reactivity as a felt sense. So able to know and able to not react. So those two parts are like indivisibly the activity of awareness, the active side or the knowing side, 
and the non-reacting side or the empty side or the non-formed part. Guy was showing us the scissors last night that nothing, in a certain way, there's not, you don't need a secondary operation to see awareness because awareness already sees itself. And that's a really amazing point, the kind of non-duality of its knowing, like a candle that's lit by its own flame. I often feel in a certain way that it helps me to do this practice to imagine that the phenomena are lit up by themselves, like experience is knowing a space that's used to be me but isn't really me anymore. <laughs> Sayada Utejaniya says this, that experiences are knowable by their own nature. Thoughts are knowable by nature. They're kind of, you can see them as being self-illuminated. And it's good to just let the awareness be very kind of passive in that, like watching and waiting and allowing the experiences to arrive or, you know, the body to feel receptive or the eyes to feel receptive and let something come in, in a sense, like be the space, be the space, let the experience come. Kind of passivity is quite helpful in this kind of practice. We've been speaking a little bit about how the mind is like a mirror. So I'll talk a little bit about the awareness side, impartial awareness right now. So in the analogy of the mirror, it's like the mirror can see beautiful or ugly things. And the mirror just reflects whatever comes into it and goes out of it. It doesn't hold on to the appearance anymore. You know, sort of one person comes, you know, in the fitting room and it looks great on them and the mirror says, it doesn't say anything, but the person has to decide. And then the next person comes in and the color doesn't look good on them and the mirror just shows it, sort of whatever, for the interpretation. Shows um, people who are going to buy and not buy, all that kind of thing. So this mirror-like quality is more and more accessible as we let go of letting any experience try to be otherwise than it is trying to fix things or judge things or blame. That's part of the renunciation really allows the beauty of this open-mindedness to come to us. To see that ability to simply know, just simply know what's true in the moment, what's real. Chaz de Capua, who's the staff teacher here, says, I don't need to be, he has a little sign in his office, which is, it's on the side of a bookshelf that he sees when he's talking to someone, so he can sort of look at it out of his eye. It says, um, I don't need to be good, I just need to be real. That's the nature of mind also. That's the mirror-like nature of mind. Beyond comparing, beyond having a perfectionistic agenda. And this kind of non- Reactivity can be a great resource even in, you know, really, really intense experiences. So the mirror can also show, you know, all these things that have happened in our world. This too can be reflected there. On 9-11 itself, I was stranded in Shanghai. I was uh, reporting for the New York Times there. I was writing a story about Shanghai and all the change and the glamour and the busyness and um, sort of world thing world city for people to visit and I was in this super fancy hotel that the New York Times was paying for and I was 
thought maybe I would like to send some email and everything was so like advanced that I had this feeling I woke up at I didn't know what time it was with jet lag and stuff I woke up and I thought maybe I can send email through the television here like it's so amazing everything's electronic wow and I turned on the TV and I saw all those like plain images and I really didn't know what it was at first it took a long time and I couldn't leave and I ran out of money the Times couldn't send me any more money so I had to change my hotel and go somewhere else like different place and had some help from friends and stuff like that but all the same I was kind of alone and the airlines were like telling me all these weird lies and it was a very crazy time and I um, felt a lot of love from people too but in the intensity of all of that that the whole world was really like kind of activated I would say as was I and I went to a temple there which had an image of the Buddha as he was dying and sort of a little statue there and I stood in front of the statue and I kind of looked at the statue thought about the Buddha and I said well if if you were no longer really if you knew that you didn't really exist then how could you how could you actually die something like that came to my mind and that was one of the most deep experiences I've ever had of practice not informal practice and actually all mental factors brought together into very deep inquiry into what would be the nature of an enlightened being how could the enlightened being ever cease? What would be the mind of an enlightened being? And I think I got some kind of an answer from that. Like my question led kind of uh, to a very, very deep place of non-self. So let's not be afraid of very vivid appearances in the mirror of our minds or in the sort of depth of our ability to be conscious and bring enlightening factors together, please. Something let go of existence, of the standard format of existence for me at that time, which is part of the kind of letting go that we're practicing here, like the depth of the nature of mind is unconditioned. When we completely let go, the unconditioned nature is available I think it's a little bit of a misstatement to say it's there and waiting because it's not a thing that can wait. It's not something that actually exists, but it's available in this not, not holding to anything. So this spacious side of awareness where it's non-self or almost like can't manifest without the object part, the part of it that is empty is very provocative in this sense of liberation-like. But in order to rest in that understanding of the spacious side of mind, really in an unconditioned way, it's necessary to kind of be willing to not know in a certain sense, like to, in Guy's analogy, to rest in the dark part of the night sky, to be willing to not proceed but almost like to go backwards. And this is a very long time practice. Um, many of the teachers meditate for years and years on this. It's um, taken me about 20 years since I first started looking into the nature of awareness or the nature of mind to feel like I really had any skill whatsoever. And many years I spent sort of ridiculously like some dog trying to jump out of a pen like, 
Where is it? Can't get it. Want to get it. Absurdly watching the mind wanting to kind of get something or stay there if I'd glimpsed it, like hold it. It kind of can't be done. So I'm speaking also about the need, um, if you're interested in this kind of nature of mind practice, the need for a certain kind of patience or willingness to not get it. So not finding is finding in a certain sense. And that, for our regular mind, is really crazy. (laughs) Hard to do. I had a friend who was uh, complaining about this part of the aspect of the practice, and he said his mind just felt like this prehensile tentacle that kept sticking to itself. (laughs) But I'll say that um, he made a misstatement about the word tentacle, and he used another word. (laughs) He said, (laughs) my mind feels like a prehensile. (laughs) It keeps sticking to itself. (laughs) So there is a need for some kind of, like, you know, humility also in this, like how to have a mind that clings to nothing or rests on nothing. Like when I just use the analogy of the mirror, there's not actually a mirror there. There's actually nothing there. So the mirror is kind of empty or open. There's no thing in it. There's a Zen story about that, but I, you know, I can tell it another time. So how to do it really varies person by person. Like there's a kind of, all parts of us kind of have to participate. It's really like psychophysical process. Like some of you have spoken of a sense of almost kinesthetic relaxation when you sense the nature of your awareness or look at the knowing and able to just sense for a moment something opening up a little bit. I forage for mushrooms in the Vermont forest where I live, writes this guy, and I'm always amazed at how one will search and search and never find a morel. But as soon as you find the first one, they seem suddenly to pop up everywhere in the vicinity. In part, this has something to do with the shape of the mushrooms, the way one needs to be looking at it directly with the fovea of the eye in order to distinguish its features. Hmm, said my professor, I better take you into the woods myself and show you around until you develop mushroom eyes. So I can almost visualize all of you with mushroom eyes right now. (laughs) Mushroom eyes, like the darkness in the pupil of the eye, that place not seeing itself or seeing itself. Sam Harris, who's a friend of ours, um, uh, one of those neuro measurer people um, and big debunker of theism, as you may know, wrote in The End of Faith about uh, the practicing of reality in Buddhist practice and this kind of ultimate, you know, ultimate openness. The contents of consciousness, sights, sounds, and sensations Moods, etc., whatever they are at the level of the brain, are merely expressions of consciousness at the level of our experience. Expressions of consciousness, a very interesting formulation. It's almost like the mirror giving birth to experience, not even a mirror that isn't there, but a mirror giving birth and also absorbing things that decay. It's likely our parents found us in our cribs long before we found ourselves there. We were led by their gaze and pointing fingers to coalesce around a self that never, in fact, existed. 
So as we rest in our experience, just to have a sense that even what we have known for ourselves in this retreat doesn't need to be appropriated. You can't, can't really hold on to it. You just can continue to try to make the gesture of relaxing completely or opening into space. It's not actually a metaphysical practice. The Buddha was pretty definitive that he wasn't a metaphysician. At one point, he testily remarked that theorists and philosophers mostly go around annoying other people. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a story of uh, one member of the Sangha who actually was really um, probably developmentally slightly disabled, who achieved the nature of mind. He was given the job of cleaning everybody's shoes. His name was Chundaka. And he couldn't remember even a single verse of scripture, but he could remember, clean the dirt, clean the dirt. And he started cleaning the dirt and cleaning the dirt. And then something happened, and the cleansing and the seeing of the purity kind of jumped from the outer to the inside. And he became fully enlightened. One of the arhants of the Sangha always sat in the assembly with the others. This one is a little bit of a beautiful Buddhist folktale to speak of how it's not an intellectual process to see the nature of your mind. It's actually more like a kind of disassembling the structure of the self. I remember when I used to um, do Tai Chi. I never got very far. I was doing this very long form. But I would stand. And the part of it that I knew was I would have to stand kind of like this and raise my arms very slowly and kind of loosen all the joints, like everything that was locked in the body. And at that time, whenever I would do that, my dog would often get like super and start barking at me like, arr, arr. And I thought, it's because I was really changing the place, the body, the whole like psychophysical components were softening and opening. You know, he would like, he would get excited. He thought it was kind of funny, but it was sort of like he was saying like, you've just turned into someone else. Arr, I don't recognize this spacious person. <laughs> <laughs> So there's something like that about being willing to really soften, really relax everything we think we need to know, everything we think we need to be, and even the technique of the practice. So this is one of the skills, one very valuable and subtle skill that's available in the Buddha Dharma for us. One of the ultimate teachings. So to not fixate on this practice as if it were something or some way, as if it were some part of ourself or some, anything that we can appropriate. No footing. Remember that quotation of, there's no footing in this. The Buddha said uh, this uh, skilled person directly knows unbinding as unbinding. Having directly known unbinding as unbinding, she should not conceive herself as unbound. She should not conceive herself as being in the unbinding. She should not conceive herself as being apart from unbinding, nor conceive unbinding to be hers, not delight in it. Why is that? So that she or he may fully understand it, I say. So not laying claim, fundamental practice in the suttas. When the Buddha 
would tell people not to lay claim to their experience. Sometimes they, by the force of his ability to transmit that quality of just leaving it, leaving it as it is, that people would spontaneously really realize the depth of the teaching. Unfortunately, um, as some of my venerated lamas have said, I am but a dog barking below the throne of the Buddha. (laughs) So I'm not able to persuade even myself of this thoroughly, but I'm willing to keep trying. That's a good thing. So look into the not knowing, into the darkness, beautiful darkness of the mind. The radiance of the lamp of mind is also not permanent, not self, and not truly existing. Relax there where no one is actually watching. So I'll close the talk with a uh, letter sent to this magazine, The Sun, um, by a woman named Angelina Citron from Bellingham, Washington. She said, whenever I part with my kids or my husband, I always try to say something loving because I imagine a car crash or somebody's heart giving out and I know how I would feel if the last words they'd heard from me had been impatient or distracted. But I also don't want my I love yous to become automatic. I've been trying to create new ways to say goodbye that mean I love you but feel unique and intimate and genuine. For several years when he was little, one of my sons used to say to me, fare long, old crumpleweed, my friend. (laughs) Whenever he left the house. (laughs) I have no idea where he got this from, but those are words of goodbye that I could live with. (laughs) So fare long, old crumpleweed, my friend. Dedicate this talk to a friend of mine, Ed, who would have liked to be here, but um, had an unexpectedly um, demanding medical treatment that had to last longer than he wanted and more painful and scary than he wanted. He would have liked to be here. But um, one of the things that he said once was, uh, things are never always going to be this way. (laughs) So that's the word of today. Let's be quiet for a moment. So yatabuta dhamma, being, being with it as it is, nature of awakening, just as it is. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.